Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am looking forward to spending time with my friend, Dr. Mark Muska. If you know uh, anything about this show, he has been a longtime regular guest and friend. I love having him on. He retired just last spring after 30-some years of teaching here at the University of Northwestern. And I miss him because he lives somewhere in South Dakota, uh, according to the last report I got. But uh, he's with us today. Mark, welcome. Hi. Good to be here, Bill. Thank you. (laughs) I know that you made quite an effort to get to our studio today, and we had a little bit of technical difficulty, so I appreciate your patience with us, and I'm looking forward to uh, ask the professor. Are you ready? I am. Good. I would like to start today in the book of Genesis in chapter 4. In the uh, first couple of verses, it starts like this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Mm-hmm. When, she, yep. when it said, she said, who is she talking to? Maybe herself. I don't <laughs> know. Maybe to Adam. <laughs> so. Well, don't you think Adam would want to say in, in marriage counseling? You know, I was part of that, too. Yeah. So, I don't know. that. Uh, that's, a, that's an issue. I mean, you can ask all kinds of fun questions with that. How, how did she... How did she know what to do with the thing once she gave birth to it? You know, this is kind of an unprecedented thing. It really is. And I I just thought when I saw it, I was reading it this morning and it said, she said, I thought, she said to who? And I didn't know. I thought, well, I'll save that one for Mark. Yeah. Well, you know, God may have been right there with her and been kind of like the uh, midwife and everything, you know, making sure that. She cut off the umbilical cord and mm-hmm. gave him a belly button and all that, because that's <laughs> one of the profound questions of all time, whether even Adam had belly buttons. And so that uh, you can you can have some fun with that if you want to. Kids in Sunday school, you usually like to kick that around. <laughs> if you have a question for Dr. Mark Muska, let me know. It's Ask the Professor time, 877-933-2484. Again, 877 Two four eight four. I was just uh, reading in the previous half hour from uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, that said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So when I read something like that, Mark, does that say that the person that lives in the Amazon who has not yet been evangelized has the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to him? Uh, that is a, a stretch. So g- give me the passage again in yep. Titus. I, yep. you, broke up, or you broke up a little bit. Yeah, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Yeah. I've got two parts to this uh, verse I want to ask you about. Hmm. Well, give me a second to get over there. Okay. And, uh, yeah, this, um, my short answer is I don't think it means that. Okay. That, uh, the, the idea of bringing salvation to all men, it means that we have access to salvation, and it's global, that, that no one is automatically 
disqualified because they live somewhere. Okay. That does not mean that everybody just gets saved. In other words, we all turn into universalists and, and, and say, well, everybody's saved no matter how you live and what your response to the gospel is. And there's, there's no uh, people who believe the Bible that will agree to that. And so it, uh, it seems to make the most sense, Bill, that mm-hmm. it's access to all people, that salvation now is available that uh, prior to this, it wasn't. I appreciate that uh, response. And Mark, I know there's people that will will bring up that person in the Amazon who was mm-hmm. never evangelized, who never had the name of Jesus spoken to him. Um, right. And of course, they're wondering uh, what his eternal fate is. Right. And that is a question that gets knocked around a lot, Bill. I figured... Uh, it's uh, it's been around for a long time, and there's been in the last oh I'd say in the last fifty years, forty years, uh, there's been revisiting this in a growing uh, group within Bible believing Christians that are offering some kind of hope for these people who just never hear mm-hmm. about Jesus. Um, this happened to me when I uh, was in the in the Far East in and uh, in Tibet and in the capital city of Lhasa. Uh, our uh, taxi driver there, uh, we talked to him about Jesus, and he said, who is that? I have not heard of him. And wow. so it kind, of, it kind of brought it home, you know, that, that people even yet today, they haven't. It was odd because he said, uh, we talked about Christianity, and he said, oh, I've heard of Christianity, but no connection with Jesus. So uh, the, historically, the Church has offered uh, uh, not a lot of hope for that, Bill. And it's not so much that God is unfair or that things are unfair for people. You you have to start with the human condition in the first place. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, in one of the truly difficult passages that people frown at when they read it and they they want to skip it and go to something else. It's right at the beginning of the book of Romans when Paul is going to go through and give us the gospel message in detail. There's... uh, there's 11 chapters of this that she, uh, he is expounding, and he starts by talking about human sinfulness. And in chapters 1 through 3 in particular, he makes a case to say, everyone is under the curse of sin, and we have brought it on ourselves. We are by nature rebellious. He talks about Jews who have the law and says they've got the law, but they don't keep it. And he talks about then the really tough one is what about the person who's never heard the law or had never heard the Bible, never mm-hmm. heard the gospel? And he says uh, they too are under God's condemnation. Uh, you want me to really get in deep water here? Thanks a lot, pal. Yeah, I because yeah. I'll, I'll read this passage for you, and it's a tough one. I have to admit, in Romans one eighteen, after Paul has just introduced here the gospel, it's the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then in verse 18, listen to what he lays on these readers. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And look where he goes with this, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, these humans, are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, it doesn't say that they didn't know God. It says that they did know God from what had been made. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So this is the probably the starting point passage that people work off of, Bill, to talk about how we as human beings are naturally rebellious against the true and living God that we see and his attributes that we see in what has been made all around us that that is who and what we are by nature. So when we start there, Paul's saying, okay, maybe this person never has seen a Bible or heard the name Jesus before, but there is a hostility toward the true and living God that comes from this defiance of who he is in nature, the rejecting of that. And notice, it doesn't say that people become atheists. It says they exchange that truth for idolatry. They worship humans and animals, four-footed creatures, and so forth. And so that is the state of humanity <laughs> uh, from the start. So really, the question is, why does God even save any of us from that and from that uh, that rebellion? Uh, Paul brings his... his uh, section to a close in uh, chapter 3 of Romans, where uh, he, he wraps this up, and he says in Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. It's like people come to God and say, but I did this for this person, or but I gave this money for that and this, and it's like God is saying to him, just, just, shut up. <laughs> Every mouth is closed. Yeah. We cannot justify ourselves, even though we may do some things that are charitable and uh, altruistic and this kind of a thing. We have this basic hostility, rebellion, negativity toward God, and we're in the deep weeds because of that. And uh, God has to do something for us because we can't do anything about it. And that's what he picks up at the end of chapter 3 through the next couple chapters in Romans. He lays out justification by God, by faith, through grace, not through anything we do. So it's a powerful thing. But I will agree, this is very difficult to make sense out of. We, uh, our fairness button is beeping inside of our head to say, just doesn't sound right that some of these people never seem to even have a chance to hear the gospel. But then, you know, Bill, we can say, but that's what motivates missionaries to get off their dogs and get out there and get the word out. So these people hear it because then they may be saved. I have to back off and say, I'm not omniscient. Only God is. Mm -hmm. He may have some plan and purpose to, to reach those who never hear the name Jesus or the Bible or the gospel, but he's not talking. And so I can hope against hope that maybe that's the case, but if I'm going from what the scriptures say, it just doesn't seem to open that door. And so I just can't ignore uh, the biblical message here. Does that make any sense? It makes a ton of sense. 
And I love it as a retired theology professor, you can now say shut up on Christian radio. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I don't get to say shut up, but you can. <laughs> well, usually I say that to myself when I talk too much. Oh, good, good. <laughs> it is time for Ask the Professor, one of my favorite segments of all time with my uh, friend Dr. Mark Muska. So whatever question you have, you can text it over to 877 933 Be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm so glad to be with Dr. Mark Muska this afternoon. If you have a question for Ask the Professor, now's the time. 877-933-2484. Here's a question, Mark, in 1 Peter 4. It talks about Jesus dying and then going and talking to those already dead. Who is he referring to? Oh, yeah. That is a beauty. That, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, it results in a whole lot of head scratching, <laughs> and uh, in fact, it leads to some of the language that is in some of the creeds historically that uh, talks about uh, Jesus dying and then Jesus descending into hell. And so, I'm looking for the, the verses here exactly on that, but uh, it, it says that he. Uh, think it's back here. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not finding the exact passage right now, but uh, it talks about uh, those, uh, him going and speaking to the souls who've been imprisoned. And, and uh, let's say it's around First Peter 2, maybe? That sound about it, right? I don't think it's that early. So, but anyway, it it appears as though he speaks to those who are the dead and uh, pre- proclaims the good news to them, and so that raises questions. Well, do they have a chance then after they've died? And are these the people in hell, or is he going down there and bearing witness that he is uh, the savior? And so we uh, we have all kinds of questions that come out of that. So now I'm looking for that verse. I swear it's. First Peter mm, four, yeah. nine, 419, maybe? Somebody help me. It's a, it's a very uh, interesting passage, but I can move on to the next question. Maybe we get back to this one. Um, sure. In uh, John 131, if you mm-hmm. can open that, Mark, John sure. 131, does John the Baptist say that he, that he did not know Jesus? That's an interesting passage, because it's the background on that. Let's, let's read it first. That okay. After John, the gospel writer, one of the 12 apostles, he's speaking about John the Baptist, so you've got to get your Johns right here. It's, it's two different Johns. But uh, after he introduces uh, the book, 
he talks about the testimony of John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so uh, John the Apostles begins in verse 19, talking about the testimony of John the Baptist. And then in verse 29, it gets exciting because, uh, I'll just read the text, John 1, 29, it says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And now here's the verse you're talking about. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And so he says the sign that made him recognize him as Messiah was what happened when Jesus was baptized. And he gets into that in the next verse. He says, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me, God the Father, to baptize in water, said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And then John says, I myself have seen and have testified, this is the Son of God. Now, the question comes up, because John and Jesus are cousins. We know that because uh, Mary and Elizabeth, their moms, were cousins. And so uh, that comes out in Luke chapter 1. And so how did he not know him? Doesn't he get around uh, (laughs) his cousins? Well, first of all, John, remember, spent a good deal of time out in the wilderness, so he may not have been available a whole lot. I think what's more likely, though, is that John, it's, we're not entirely sure John was aware of everything from Elizabeth about Jesus. You know, Elizabeth in Luke 1, uh, Mary shows up and she says, well, you know, the, the baby leaped in my womb at your, your, uh, your coming. And so it appears as though John, even before he was born, was able to testify that this was Jesus. But again, you're talking 30 years later. Uh, John is baptizing. It may be that he did not recognize him right away. He hadn't seen his cousin for a while. Mm. And so uh, he he did not see him. But I think it's more likely he did not recognize him as the chosen one, as the one God said, you're going to see the Spirit descend upon him. That's the sign, John. That's what you look for. And that's uh, before that, John didn't recognize Jesus as such. But after that, he testifies, this is the Son of God. That was what God gave him as the indisputable sign that Jesus was the anointed one. Now, that's so good. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Send your questions to 877-933-2484. Mark, I found the, pa- the passage. It's 1 Peter 3.19. And does okay. it teach that Jesus preached in hell? Yeah, let me get over there. 1 Peter 3. 19. Yeah, that one was eluding us, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Yeah, so First Peter 3.19. Yeah, I'm just going to get into some of the, the context here. Here, uh, uh, Peter's teaching us about uh, suffering for the name of Christ. We're blessed if we do that. We're to sanctify Jesus as Lord and ready to make a, a defense to anyone who asks us about the hope that's within us. And then... In verse 18, he starts talking about Christ. He said, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, 
so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then he goes on to talk about baptism and the removal of dirt from the flesh and the removal of sin and that. Uh, He goes on from there. But uh, I don't know about you, Bill. Sometimes I read something like that, and I I wish I would have been there while Peter was writing this and been able to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait a minute, Peter. What are you talking about? Because he just drops this on us and there's no real explanation of it here that comes. So we're just kind of left trying to make sense out of it. It appears as though these disobedient souls, clearly during the days of Noah, that remember how terrible that was described in Genesis 6, where Moses says that the only thoughts of their hearts were only evil. Mm-hmm. And God grieved that he made humanity because of that. I mean, it was really bad. And so it's these people that Peter is referring to here, and now they're imprisoned in this afterlife in the netherworld, and Jesus makes proclamation to them now in prison. Is it a proclamation of hope? I think that's a stretch. There are some Bible-believing teachers today that are trying to offer a hope for post-mortem salvation opportunities, that even after we die, we can put our faith in Jesus and in the gospel and be saved and go to heaven. There was a book written about 10 years ago by a uh, an evangelical pastor, a Bible-believing pastor, that really uh, stirred this pot of saying, uh, in fact, the name of the book was Love Wins, that God continues to witness to these people after they've died, and he eventually wears them out. And even their rebelliousness, they can't stay rebellious anymore, and God's love wins, and everyone puts their faith in Jesus and in the gospel and gets saved. That is one whopping stretch to take out of a passage like that. this, okay? I think you've shinnied out on a very narrow branch on the tree to take that kind of position based on a couple of verses here. So uh, do I understand the thing completely? Uh, nope. I don't, and I'm very much teachable if people have other input for it, but uh, we have to just accept this. There's things going on in the netherworld in the afterlife that get gets mentioned briefly and hinted at, but we just don't know for sure exactly uh, what, uh, what to make of it. Mm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor is this segment, and if you have a question, and there's some great questions that are coming in, so be one of them. You can text your question over. I'll ask Mark on your behalf. Of course, you can remain anonymous. Just about everybody does. So 877-933-2484. I'll give that again one more time. 877-933-2484. If you've had a question that you've been uh, thinking about for a long time and you'd like to ask Mark, now is the time to do it. We'll be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. Dr. Mark Mosca is my guest. And if you know Mark, he will take a shot at any question you have. And 99.9% of the time, wow, is he good. So it's that other half of 1%, Mark. You know, the that's, I don't knows. Yeah. It's the I don't knows. That's, that's, that's the world I live in. So thank you for being on the show. All right, I had another question pertaining to the First Peter 3.19 comment. And that, the question was asked, does this have to do with Ephesians 4.19, or I'm sorry, 4.9, where it says he descended to the lower regions? Yeah, so let's let's take a look at that. Uh, Paul is talking here about uh, Jesus standing, and uh, in Ephesians four, uh, let's see how far back should I read here? Um, it says uh, the the I guess we can start in verse seven. It says to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he, Christ, ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So when he ascended, he, he, he brought salvation, I think, is the way to understand that. And now, verse 9, Paul seems to be explaining himself a little bit. He says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And so this could be referring to the same things that Peter was getting at in First Peter 3. I think it's more likely, though, it's just talking about him descending to the lower parts of the earth. He came to earth, and he walked the earth, even though he was the heavenly man. He was the, 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 at the right hand of God. So uh, it, again, though, it isn't something that uh, uh, Paul elaborates on very much, and so we just have to go with it. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. So let's look quickly at Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, and Jesus promises whoever seeks will find God. So God is not limited to using humans to bring the gospel, correct? Well, that's another one. That's, that's uh, The pot has been stirred on that <laughs> one. Uh-huh. In- in the last uh, few years, and uh, I'm really uh, rethinking it myself. Uh, I'll start at verse 7 here, Matthew 7. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What is there? What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf? He'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to treat them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. And so that uh, Jesus is saying, ask, uh, make uh, Make your requests known to God. That kind of sounds like Philippians 4, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, uh, it does. Well, with thanksgiving, let your, uh, don't be anxious for anything, but everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And so, with thanksgiving. And so I think that's the point that uh, Jesus is making here, is that you, uh, uh, God is a loving Father, and He is going to re- be responsive. 
to us when we ask. Now, the caveat with that, and I use Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as an illustration of this, is that uh, these things that are in line with his will and with Jesus' will, that he is, he will pour out those uh, those blessings to answer those kinds of prayers. Remember, Jesus uh, asked the Father uh, to take the cup away from him that he he was going to uh, be faced with uh, going to the cross. But very famous clause there, he says, "But not my will, but yours be done, Father." And so that's always a good thing to throw in to the. Uh, requests that we make is to make sure we're lining up with with God here and not doing what uh, Janis Joplin did back uh, 50 years ago. You know, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Mm -hmm. My my friends all have Porsches. I must make amends. I mean, uh, that that is something that probably isn't going to line up with the will of God. So, but then on the other side of it, Bill, I think sometimes we get too bashful then, and we start qualifying things, and we don't really trust the Lord to answer the things that we ask for and the things that we request from Him. And so it's kind of like a tightrope that we're walking. We want to make sure that we stay aligned with God's will when we make our requests. But this passage really emphasizes, but make your requests. Uh, I, I think a really good thing to do is to say, Lord, uh, this person is sick and uh, doesn't look like they're going to live much longer. You know what I'm going to request, God, that you extend their life and they live longer. Uh, not my will, but your be done. But I am asking you, it is my request, and I'm asking you as your child. So uh, you, you hear me trying to play both sides of the tightrope there? Mm-hmm, I do. To, to make our request. And sometimes Christians get too bashful because they want to make sure they're, they're asking according to God's will. And so their request is, well, you know, Lord, uh, this person needs to be healed. But, you know, sort of, I, I don't really know if you're going to do anything like that or and this. And we start backing away and, and that. And that seems to be against the spirit of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 7. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. 877 933 2484. Here's another question, Mark. Where in, in in the scripture can I find salvation of children or babies if they pass early? What happens? I've heard of the age of accountability, but can't find that text to back it up. Yeah, uh, that's, this is a difficult one. The It really is not addressed in any direct kind of a way in the scriptures of uh, are, uh, this especially becomes a question, Bill, with the traditions that baptize babies. Now, not everyone who baptizes babies and young children believe that they're saved at that point. There's a tradition in uh, many Reformed traditions that they see this as dedicating the child to be part of the community of the Church, but not saved until they put their faith in the Gospel themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are traditions that believe that uh, when that baby is baptized, they are saved at that point, and if they die, they will go to be with God. I can understand it. It's a very sentimental thing. You know, what kind of hope do you have if a child tragically dies early? Uh, that uh, that it brings consolation to many people. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't identify with this too well in the 21st century in the United States because 
the mortality rate has gone down so much with infants and that dying at, at childbirth or early in age. But you can go century after century where, wow, you know, a, a family would have eight children and three of them would have reached their teens. You know, I mean, there there was a lot of, uh, of uh, early deaths. And so you can see that this would be something that would console uh, to be able to give them reassurance of that. Uh, I'm not so sure I can, uh, I can agree with that about water baptism, but I'm also not going to say that there's something terrible then that happens to these babies and they're left without God and without uh, Christ because they died before they could hear the gospel and put their faith in it. So uh, with a shadowy question like that, Bill, I love to use the imagery of saying that so much of who and God is and what we know of him is in the clear daylight of Scripture. And a couple of those things are he is compassionate. He defines compassion and mercy and kindness. And so whatever is the kind and compassionate and merciful thing, that's what takes place with those children that don't reach the age to be able to put their faith in the gospel themselves. And so I'm not going to let an issue like that cast a shadow on what I do know in the broad sunlight about who God is and the way that he, he reaches out to us. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, it may be one of those questions we're going to be knocking on the door in heaven and asking God about when we get there. I doubt it. We're going to be so overwhelmed to be there. that mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of these questions are going to matter anymore. But mm-hmm. they are serious questions. I, I, I fully empathize with the person who's lost a child, uh, that uh, what kind of hope can you give them? And I like to proclaim, I can give you hope in a merciful, loving, gracious God who defines those things. And so you can have confidence in him and not have to be uh, wringing your hands in dread over what happened to that child. Mm, so good. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Mark, I'm trying to read the scriptures slower. I just want to read them slowly and then take notes and <laughs> shut things down. So the other day I'm reading slowly in Acts 12 and I'm in verse 6 and it says, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial. So he's got trial the next day. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. Now, I don't know yeah. about you, Mark, but I don't know if I'm sleeping very well that night if I'm bound with two chains with soldiers and I've got a trial the next morning. And there are sentries stood outside the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. I think that's enough to wake me up. Apparently it well, wasn't. He had to slug Peter. He had to slug Peter. Up. He struck yeah. Peter on the side and woke him up. Yeah. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Yeah. Don't you hope there's reruns in heaven of this stuff? <laughs> Actually, I do. Be so much fun, you know? Yeah, Such I mean. A glorious thing here, what happened. And it, and it seems as though a lot of this stuff seems to happen to Peter, you know? I mean, the guy, I just I just love the, the way that he served God and led the church, and boy, did he have feet of clay, you know? The guy is just something else, because, you know, you go on with this passage, and the angel's leading him out, and he thinks he's having a great dream, 
you know, this is, this is cool. The angel's <laughs> taking me out of prison. Right. <laughs> and, and he gets out, and the angel departs from him, and he says, wait a minute, this angel's rescued me from the hand of Herod in verse 11. So, and then it's even more fun because uh, totally. he goes to the house of Mary and he's knocking on the door and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer verse 13. She recognized Peter's voice because of her joy. She didn't know, open the door, but ran in and announced Peter was standing at the front of the gate. And uh, can't you just see this? I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember. It reminds me of Fred Flintstone coming home from work and getting locked out of his house <laughs> and pounding on the door. You know, Peter's out there whacking on the door, and Rhoda got so excited she forgot to let him in. And so, uh, you know, verse 16, Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. So it's it's so fun because it's so real, Bill. You know, this yeah. is this is the way people act. This is not sanctifying this to make Peter just this stud muffin of faith all the time. You know, he's a flesh and blood guy. And uh, it just, uh, it, it's it's reassuring to me the way Luke captures this passage so vividly in the way he describes it. See, I think, I think you're home listening to Beethoven and you're watching the Flintstones. Man, you know, that, That's beautiful. I watched that when I was a kid. That was one of the favorite things. I think it was Tuesday night at 6.30. We oh, yeah. So, and come on, Barney Rubble, he's quite an actor, wasn't he? I know it. It was great stuff in those days. Yeah. Very entertaining. Yeah, so here's another comment, Mark, about uh, babies. Uh, David said he would go to where his son went, referring to the baby he had with Bathsheba. Yeah, that's one of the things that people will point to, that uh, I don't know if we can uh, take it that far, of what happens there with uh, David, remember, with his uh, sin with Bathsheba, just for people who don't know the story, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to hide it, he tried to hide it by murdering Bathsheba's husband and taking her into the, the palace that he lived in, because it, it's, it works this way a lot of the time with sexual immorality. It's amazing how God brings light to it because somebody gets pregnant, you know, and it's usually the woman. And now he can't hide it anymore. And so uh, David here, uh, he uh, thinks he got away with it, though, brings Bathsheba into the palace and uh, kind of dusts his hands off. That's that. Well, uh, with an omniscient, all-knowing God, that is not that. And so uh, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David about mm-hmm. this. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful it's a, a, a wonderful uh, uh, action here of David in repentance. But then one of the things Nathan says is, God will forgive you, because the first three words out of David's mouth when he's confronted, I wish all of us could be this way. He says, I have sinned. He didn't try to blame others or rationalize it. He confessed his sin. He he admitted it. Didn't try to, didn't try to run away from it. Mm-hmm. But one of the consequences, Nathan says, is that baby is going to die between you and Bathsheba. It's not going to survive. But David petitioned the Lord. Talk about praying according to God's will. He was in great uh, straits there to ask God for the life of this child. But the child died, and his servants were worried that uh, when... uh, 
uh, David is, uh, you know, prostrate and fasting like this with the child sick. What's he going to do? Is he going to hurt himself if he finds out the baby dies? But David figured out from their movements that the baby had died. And that's where he says this, where he says, now uh, the, the baby, uh, I will, uh, the baby will not return to me, but I will go to him. And that's where this caller, I'm sure, is referring to this to say, okay, uh, we've got real confidence that when David died, he went to be with God. Yeah. All right, Mark. We're, so, yeah, we're going to have to jump on a quick break here. We'll be back. And, and oh, please hold that thought if you can. Dr. Mark Muska is our guest. We'll be right back. Thanks so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Susie Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other faith radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Susie Larson Live at myfaithradio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Oh, such a beautiful song. That's the walk-up music for Dr. Mark Muska, Ask the Professor. Yeah. Has been this hour, and if you have a question, I might be able to sneak it in eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. When we started this conversation about children who die before the age of accountability, another listener chimed in with Matthew chapter nineteen verse fourteen that said, "Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the yep. kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these." Yeah, isn't that good? I love it. And so, you know, there's there's verses like that and this illustration with David that gives us hope that this there's more to this than uh, than we think. And so, and even this thing about baptizing uh, babies, there's uh, a scripture that uh, seems to indicate when a family became. Uh, uh, believers in the gospel that the whole household was baptized. I'm I'm thinking of Acts 16 with the jailer that had uh, Paul and Silas in jail at, at Philippi, and uh, Paul led him to faith. And uh, they, uh, uh, I'm looking at Acts 16:34 here. It says, "And he brought them. The jailer brought Paul and Silas into his house." and set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And so the inference is made, well, in a household like that, you'd expect to have parents and children and maybe babies. And so uh, it seems as though that's a possibility then, that these babies were uh, uh, brought to faith early. The, uh, the a verse uh, earlier, it says, he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So uh, it's possible. But the, the key word there is maybe or possible. We just don't have it nailed down. So uh, I, I am one to offer great hope if 
a child dies because of who God is and my understanding of him that he's made known to us in the Bible, I've got great hope for those children. As do I, and I appreciate you, you saying that, and I, I know that that's probably a question every, everyone has asked. Well, and, when it hits home, when you have right. a child die like that, that's just, that's just torture for the parents. And so there's, there is a place for consolation in that. We don't have to just give up hope. Yeah, because when people are inquiring about God, it seems that two questions that often come up are, is God good and can he be trusted? Yep. And the answer to that is, yep, yep. Exactly, but then if there would be a possibility that that child wouldn't be in his presence after death, that would not make him a good God in the eyes right. of many. Yep. But, you know, can you can you sense, Bill, we are completely out of our league when mm. we get into those situations. Well, yeah, I know I am. So thank you. All right, yeah. let's stir up the pot a little bit more. The New Testament states that women are not to be in authority over men, so should women teach a class of mixed genders? Yeah, that one, uh, maybe the main passage for that one comes in uh, first, uh, uh, I'm sorry, second, uh, I'm sorry, first Timothy, uh, chapter three, uh, chapter two, where uh, Paul is talking about the church and how it is to conduct itself, and uh, some of that has to do with men and women in the church. And uh, that whole chapter of First Timothy 2, and it, it continues in chapter 3, is, uh, is one that a whole lot of discussion is generated, uh, because he's, he seems to be singling out certain things for men and certain things for women here in this chapter. And so we look at this and say, okay, he's talking about this. Is this, though, the situation for the church there in the first century at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring, or is this supposed to be the way it is for all time, for all people? So, I mean, I'll just, I'll read a couple of these for you here. In chapter two, uh, Paul, let's see here, um, I'm going to start at verse eight. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now you read that and you say, okay, men like humanity, you know, men and women. That doesn't work because the next verse, Paul says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing and so forth. And so he's calling the men in particular there to be praying, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So this appears to be a challenge, at least in the church here in Ephesus, that they, uh, these men step up and come to be, come before the Lord in prayer. And so he addresses women and gives them some things. And then the verses that you're talking about here with women teaching, uh, verse 11, it says, First uh, Timothy 2.11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And so, boy, oh boy, Bill. I mean, there's been a whole lot of ink spilled on paper to discuss this and uh, try to make sense out of it. So uh, by no means am I going to step in today and just, you know, answer all the questions that come out of a passage like that. Uh, It appears at face value, Paul is saying 
that there is a distinction between the women and the men in the church, not a distinction of value or of preciousness to God or of stature as being heirs of the promises of God, nothing like that, but in the way the church functions and for the church to function smoothly. Uh, Peter's going to get into the same kind of thing in First Peter 3, when he talks about how uh, men and women conduct themselves in the church. But you talk about just a, a boiling over issue today in 2022 oh, yeah. of men and women. I mean, we're having trouble even figuring out what a woman and what a man is today. Uh, we've got a Supreme Court justice that couldn't answer the question about what a woman is. And so the confusion and uh, of, uh, dissension and uh, battling going on makes it especially difficult for the church to navigate through this. Yeah. Well, Mark, you're a sharpest attack today, and I have to ask, how is retirement going? Well, I'll let you know when I feel like I'm retired. <laughs> I'm, I'm going like crazy all the time. Yeah, I assume you are. We're trying to get settled in Sioux Falls here. A lot of work to do on the house and trying to make friends and find a church and uh, try to act like followers of Christ. And wow. so we're uh, we're moving through this and it's been it's been a real challenge I have to say but we've enjoyed it and uh, we've uh, moved near my son and his family with his uh, three boys and that's just been a delight my wife was with the middle one this afternoon and I'm waiting to hear the report on that that usually is just a sweet time oh sweet with those boys yeah well thank you so much for spending time with us today and have a great evening yeah I appreciate that bill you bet. all right okay. Dr. Dr. Mark Muska has been my guest. Ask the Professor. That wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.